Hello listeners, Aisha here. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the episode you're about to hear was recorded on Tuesday the 10th of July, and because we're talking about Brexit, who knows what could happen between now and Monday when this episode comes out. Let's do it. Well, in detailed discussions today, the Cabinet has agreed our collective position on the future of our negotiations with the EU. All eyes are on the Cabinet Brexiteers this lunchtime. I've got a feeling the whole thing might start to unravel in a few days. Every now and then, we have one of those weeks in British politics when everything is up in the air and no one knows what's going to happen next. Last week was one of those weeks. I was the person who had to present it to Parliament, to the European Union, uh, to everybody else. And you know, if I don't believe in it, then I, don't do as good a, I won't do as good a job as somebody who does believe in it. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has quit. Let's go straight to 10 Downing Street. Number 10 uh, has lost its back pain. But in between the resignations and the reshuffles, what did we learn about where Brexit could go next? Much of the focus has been on the response to the deal the Prime Minister reached with her cabinet at her country house, Chequers. But what was in the deal itself? How practical is the government's new position on Brexit? And what are the alternatives? It could be said that this is fake sovereignty. In other words, you have got the right to do something which you know will severely damage your trade, so you can't really take it. No. In effect, we carry on taking their rules. No. With just eight months and two weeks left on the clock until the UK is supposed to leave the EU, we're doing a big Brexit explainer on the Weekly Economics podcast today. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Brace yourselves. OK, so joining me to talk about what on earth is going on with Brexit, I'm joined by special guest Marley Morris, who's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research, or IPPR, if you call, where he leads their work on Brexit. Hi, Marley. Hello. Thanks very much for having me on. It's lovely. Thanks for being here. Uh, also back, an old favourite, Andrew Pendleton, did not like that description, <laughs> Principal Director of Policy and Advocacy here at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Andrew. It wasn't the favourite bit I minded, it's the old. Oh, OK, bit, yeah, 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 yeah. Constantly Just a bit getting told off for that. About that. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be skipping our usual headline segment this week because who knows what could happen between now and when you hear this. Maybe more resignations, maybe a World Cup victory, and then we've got the Trump visit. So instead of getting caught up in all that drama, we're going to do the best we can to shed some light on the government's new position on Brexit and what might happen next. So first up, just a little bit of context setting. So leading up to this this kind of big dramatic week that we had, culminating in Theresa May's away day, that's a mouthful, Theresa May's away day, <laughs> uh, and the resignations over the following few days, what was going on? Someone give us an explainer. God, it all feels so long ago now. I can't remember <laughs> what happened before. Um, I mean, I think there were, there were lots of debates within the cabinet about about their position. Um, there were lots of rumours about possible resignations and there was there was a lot of confusion. There was sort of, lot, there were some rumours about the kind of position they were coming to and there were lots of rumours that there was going to be a real softening of the position and that's kind of what came out. So there were mm. you know, there were some predictions that that, that that Theresa May was moving towards kind of single market for goods territory, and that's that's basically where it where it came out in the end. And obviously there were all the uh, rumours about how um, the cabinet uh, members would have their phones taken away and would have to mm, stick I to the that. line and all mm. that stuff as well. So yeah. Oh. Okay, so there were, there were rumblings. Yes. We knew something big was coming. So just to stay with you for a second then, Marley, it's, it's a big question, but could you sum up what is in the deal that the Prime Minister reached with most of her cabinet? So, so her deal is basically 
keeping things the same for goods. So basically nothing really changes for goods, roughly speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on regulatory issues, keeping all the rules the same. On customs issues, it's a bit more complicated because she wants this idea of, of, of being able to change the UK's tariffs uh, mm-hmm. after we leave. But at the same time, she doesn't want a, a border in, in Northern Ireland. So she's come up with a sort of a, a way around this by potentially being able to reimburse people who export to the UK after they trade into it um, by tracking where those goods go. And if they go to the UK, then they get reimbursed. If they go to the EU, then they don't. And so there's sort of a way, a way, of, a way around the issue of, 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 of the, the Northern Irish border, which she's proposed. Um, and then on services, she's basically said, well, look, we're going to be free to diverge. We're going to do our own thing. That's where we're going to have flexibility. That's where we're going to be able to strike new trade deals around services. And at the same time, we're going to have end free movement of people. So we're going to be able to control immigration. Wow. So there's a lot going on there. Goods and services, Northern Ireland, tariffs, immigration. We'll get into it a little bit more, but that was really useful. Thank you. Andrew, did you want to add anything? Well, I was only going to say that going going back to the old thing, I think it was, I wasn't (laughs) until about the age of 40 that I realised what the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it, meant. Mm, I still don't think I know. uh, Well, I suppose what it means is that the cake is there on the plate and if you eat it, it's not there anymore, essentially. I think that's what it means. (laughs) Blank looks all around the room. Interesting. I think that's essentially what it means. And the the Brexit is just the perfect illustration, isn't it? Is that you, you simply can't have your cake and eat it. So if you leave the European... Free trade area, you can't sell goods in unless you meet the regulations broadly. You're going to have to find a way of doing that one way or the other. And so that kind of undermines really the whole purpose of leaving Brexit, of leaving the European Union if you're a Brexiteer and your aim is to strike free trade deals on lower, on lower regulations all around the world where you know the regulatory standards aren't so high. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the very nature of you can't have your cake and eat it is Brexit, really. Mm. So, yeah, just leading on from that then, how, you said, Molly, that there was something around one deal for goods and one deal for services. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm still kind of confused. Yeah, so I, I think the the government's thinking, or Theresa May's thinking, is basically we need to keep things as close as possible as we have now for goods um, for basically two reasons. On the one hand, to solve the issue of the Irish border, and obviously the, uh, the key question there is goods, because if you have goods crossing the border, then you know you, you need to have the same rules on both sides in order to av- avoid any regulatory checks, um, and you know it, you, you need to have some kind of customs arrangement to avoid any customs checks as well. So that's why she's she's proposed what she has on goods also obviously with goods you know there's there there are potentially really damaging things if you if you if you change dramatically your rules on goods because it means Mm. that suddenly you know you have like massive tailbacks you know um you have you know issues um around rules of origin which are Mm -hmm. sort of these these technical customs issues that that emerge you have all sorts of technical problems that that make it really difficult for exporters in the uk so she's like okay we'll just deal with that we'll keep roughly as as we can things similar but then on services she's like well we need to have we need, to have, we need to change something. We can't keep everything exactly the same. So that, her, her idea is, well, let's, let's change things up on services. You know, we are, we're a big service economy. We'll have flexibility to, to diverge. That will somehow be kind of advantageous to us. Um, so, so what's what an thinking. example of that with the services? Because I'm really not getting... So, so like, what is an example of a, of a service that m- might change? Well, I mean, I mean, so 
I'm skeptical of her of her claim that so this, there's, there's this advantage to to be done on, on, on diverging services. I mean, the, the, obviously the big one is financial services. I mean, you know, the, the Bank of England I think has been concerned about the idea of of the UK just following EU rules on financial services without without being able to uh, make participate in the decision making so you could argue she wants some flexibility around financial services in future um Mm. and and to be able to to be able to have flexibility maybe around like broadcasting things like that i think the other aspect of it is that she realizes that services and people are quite interconnected because obviously people often travel across borders to provide services and Mm. so she realizes well if we're going to end the free movement of people we can sort of go to the eu and say look we're ending the free movement of people but look we, we we accept there's a kind of you know quid pro quo here we're, we're going to lose our access to your services market. So, you know, that's, mm. that's, that's a kind of fair deal. I mean, I don't think the EU will see it like that, but you know, that's, that's, how she's, that's how she's playing it. Okay. So, so is this kind of all thinking, it's, it's all designed so we can do deals with, with the EU and, and the US and other places. So we have some chips, something like that? Exactly. Yeah, she she wants some chips. So to be able to negotiate with other other countries, you need to have something, uh, 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 you know, to be able to negotiate with. And she thinks maybe services is, is enough. I mean, I can see why some of the Brexiteers got a bit upset because they because if you align your rules on on goods, then obviously. Uh, then you have less flexibility to change those rules to be able to get trade deals with other countries like the US. Now, in truth, I think actually it's very unlikely that we would, even if we were able to diverge on our rules on goods, that we would actually do it. Because in reality, the only way you would diverge is by lowering your standards. So for instance, to get a trade deal with the US, you might lower your food safety standards. Now, we did some polling at IPPR and literally no one wants that. So mm. the idea that, that somehow you could do this and, 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 uh, and you get this great cherry deal with the US, well, I just don't think there's any public support for it. Um, and so in reality, you know, saying we're going to stick to these rules on goods, probably, you know, it, it makes sense because there's no appetite to diverge anyway. Mm. Interesting. All right. So, Andrew, what's different about this deal and where we're at now compared to where the government was a few weeks ago? Well, it's, a, it's softer. So uh, the, the definition of of Brexit has become about its relative hardness and softness. So this yeah, is a softer... Egg thing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A, yeah, it's the egg thing or other things. Um, so it's a, it's a softer version of Brexit. It probably takes us closer to some other models that already exist a little bit. It's pragmatic because it tries to get around the, the Northern Ireland question in a way which doesn't propose at least sort of fairly distant technological solutions that have never been tried and tested or something else. And so the difference is there. But I, d- I do think the key, though... I, th- I think it's very hard to talk about this whole issue without talking about the politics because really the reason why this deal has kind of been hewn in the way that it is is because the, the politics were essentially intractable. You know, Northern Ireland is a massive question that hangs over the whole thing and I suspect when it comes to it, no prime minister is really going to want to sacrifice the agreement, the Good Friday Agreement or es- the essence of the Good Friday Agreement for for a hard Brexit. It's just such a massive decision to take. The other big factor, I think, that we know is not part of the UK politics, but is a really significant thing that we never consider, or at least the English, British media never considers, is is Europe and what its approach to this is, mm. is going to be, you know, because it's a formidable negotiating force. Its primary interest in this is not having free rider is not having any free riders. So it doesn't, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't want to make any concessions to encourage the potential for mm. others to ask for those same concessions. So it doesn't really want to give Britain a chance to to become a free rider, to enjoy some of the things that actually, frankly, the Chequers deal would be asking 
the EU for. Mm. Um, and so it's not really in the EU's interest to negotiate very gently with us. Mm. Uh, so I think the big test of this is going to be when it hits Michel Barnier and the, and the EU. And I, I, t- I literally took the gravy train to Brussels on <laughs> Wednesday last week. I was in Brussels on Wednesday last week. And there is still this incredible bewilderment. Mm. You, know, you talk to anybody in, in, a kind of, in that kind of Brussels orbit and they cannot believe, A, that the UK is kind of sacrificing its position as the kind of pragmatic deal-maker at the heart of Europe that always gets what it... We, we always got what we wanted, essentially. We always got mm. what we got. Lots and lots of opt-outs in Europe. So we actually had... We sort of had quite a bit of cake still on the plate and ate some of it. Mm. Um, and uh, secondly, they just can't believe we haven't got... Uh, they, we haven't made a workable proposal yet. I mean, they're absolutely astonished by mm. how late we're leaving it. Wow. So we're going to we're going to get to what the hard Brexiteers want and what Europe wants uh, a bit later on. But I just want to talk about Northern Ireland for a second, because mm-hmm. obviously it's mm-hmm. been raised a couple of times uh, and it's a really central issue in all of this, obviously. So, um, Andrew and then and then Marlon, if you want to jump in, could you just explain for our listeners what the government's position is on Northern Ireland's future and what that might mean for any possible Brexit deal? Well, I guess the a pillar of the the settlement that we currently have on the island of Ireland, including the North and ERA, is that trade passes, passes currently without any um, impediment between the two because we're both part of the European Union. I mean, this is very obvious. And Brexit threatens that. And what was on the table previously threatened that. Now, Marley, you're a greater expert than me on this, so you probably know what the implications of this latest deal are. But there's still, there's still things to be worked out, as I understand it, because it's not necessarily the case that that's... Um, immediately going to solve that problem, that what was on the table from Chequers is immediately going to solve that problem. It's, yes. co- it's complicated and difficult. And that's the other thing that's at the heart of all of this, is everything is complicated and difficult. There isn't a simple solution to a lot of these things. Mm. Absolutely. No, no, I'm glad you asked that because, I mean, I've been astonished how so many journalists in the last few days haven't been asking about Northern Ireland because it's basically what's driving everything and it still isn't resolved, as, mm. as you say. I mean... That's that's fundamentally what's driven Theresa May to this position. The, the problem is, is that you know she came initially a few months ago, uh, basically proposing an, an FTA and a free trade agreement with with the EU. The EU said, fine, mm-hmm. well, we'll, we'll give you a free trade agreement, but we need to agree as part of that a backstop solution for for Northern Ireland, and that means that you know if, unless there's some kind of arrangement that's somehow solved. Um, through the future negotiations, which, to be honest, in an FTA is very unlikely because FTAs mm. are, are are not really equipped to do that. And Northern Ireland basically needs to stay in the customs union, needs to stay very closely aligned to the EU uh, in terms of its regulations on goods. And that means that suddenly you've got a, a division uh, or, or a, a dealignment between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Mm. And that is problematic uh, on so many levels. It's problematic uh, for the DUP, obviously, that's supporting the government. It's problematic for the Conservatives, who are, you know, proud unionists. And Theresa May, who, you know, you know her, her first speech on the steps of Downing Street, she talked about how important the union was to her. Um, it's problematic for Labour as well, because they don't, you know, it, it, it's, it's risky for them in the context of Scotland, because suddenly if you... If you uh, give Northern Ireland a special status, then Scotland and the SNP will start argue, arguing for a special status. So it's problematic for all the major players in this. Even the 
concept, the possibility, the concept of having a backstop that says even under particular circumstances Northern Ireland could be somehow different to the rest of the UK is so problematic that Theresa May is doing everything she can to avoid it. And that's why she's proposed this quite elaborate arrangement around customs and quite elaborate arrangement around, around goods in order to avoid the possibility of Northern Ireland separating itself off from the rest of the UK, because that's the thing she fears the most. Okay, so let's have a look at three groups and how they're responding to all of this. So the hardcore Brexiteers, the opposition in Parliament and the EU itself. Obviously, we've done this a little bit already, but let's start with the, the Brexiteers. We've had some of them resigning. Um, so what are the, their main objections to the Chequers deal, the hardcore Brexiteers? I mean, I mean, it seems to me that the, the hardcore Brexiteers actually don't currently quite know what to do. So it's quite, it's, I think it's quite interesting because obviously there have been the two res resignations and there may be more by the time this is yeah. uh, broadcast. But, um, you know, the, the, they don't know quite what to do. And some are taking that kind of sit and wait approach because they're happy just to have a deal. They, they just want Brexit. Basically, they see there's a real risk now to Brexit or there's a, a more of a risk to the... To you know, the whole idea of Brexit could collapse. There's a potential for that, and they see that. So, I think some are prepared to wait and see, which is why some, like I think Rhys Mogg, has been a bit more polite, and um, sort of unusually, I suppose, for him, sitting on his hands a bit more, making it very clear that um, the Chequers deal will have to be unravelled if if that part of the party and the European Research Group in particular are, are to be kept on board. But you know, then obviously there's there's others. So I think there's a bit of a split, isn't there? I mean, there's a bit of a schism, I think, mm. in the in the Brexiteers now, and it just suggests that one possible scenario for the prime minister is to stick to her guns and see what happens, and see if that schism develops and actually the cohesion within the Brexiteers breaks down. Yes, mm. yeah, yeah, and, and I think that schism is fundamentally it's it's about sovereignty. I think that's where the, the divide is within the Brexiteers. So on the one hand, you have people like Michael Gove, who, who have looked at the deal and have said, well, look, the deal says, yes, we'll align on, on, on goods, on, on, on regulations on goods. But it also says, you know, in future, Parliament will decide. So mm -hmm. if, there, if, there is, if there is new regulations on goods that come through from the EU, then Parliament will decide whether or not to accept them or not. Yes, there'll be consequences for market access if, if the UK says, no, we don't want to accept those those regulations, and they could be quite serious consequences, not just for market access indeed, but even for, for security and for other things. But look, there's a principle there, and, and sort of the UK decides. I think for, for some of the other uh, Brexiteers, maybe uh, you know, Boris and uh, David Davis, the, the approach of saying, well, you, 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 have, you have a choice, you, you don't have to sign up to these rules, but if you, if you, do, if you do decide not to sign up, then this is what's going to happen. It's going to be a complete disaster. They think, well, that's maybe a sort of, that's not real sovereignty. They want the ability to do whatever they want um, mm. without any consequences. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, I think in reality that's probably not feasible, but yeah. I can see from their perspective, they think, you know, they don't like the idea of, of there being this kind of threat over them that's sort of hanging over them, that every choice the UK makes in future, there'll be this terrible consequence of, of a loss of market access and, and potentially for security as well. Yeah, mm. but you can't have your cake and eat it. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that earlier, right? I did. Yeah, I did okay, yeah. it's a theme. All right, good. Uh, so, so yeah, that's it then, this idea that Andrew Marr mentioned of fake sovereignty. That's kind of yes. part, part of what their argument is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Labour. Talk to me about Labour. Um, that was it. Deep inhale. Deep, deep, <laughs> deep inhale. inhale. Well, I mean, you know, Labour has its fairly profound splits too. So there, you know, there certainly has been um, suggestions in the media coverage that there's some... 
uh, potential for Theresa May now to approach the the centrists in the Labour Party and and see if she can peel them off in terms of parliamentary mm. action. So when this comes to votes in Parliament, whether she can. Uh, rely on them. And then obviously there is still, a, it's sort of smaller and less significant, I guess, than um, than the situation in the Conservative Party, but there is still the kind of Lexiteer, as they're called, the kind of Brexiteers on the left, who have kind of totally different approach to the whole issue in many respects. And it's much more about, you know, kind of how the EU is governed and how that constrains us from, well, I suppose it is it is about sovereignty in a way, but it's how it constrains us from having even more progressive approaches to how we run our economy and so forth. You know, obviously, they, they have some considerable in influence on the front bench of the Labour Party. So it's quite interestingly balanced. But, you know, Labour's sort of plugging away at the same game as it has been, really. I don't think its position is changing much. Um, it, uh, you know, as things currently stand, and I suppose their current logic is to kind of sit back a bit and watch what happens now over the next few days and weeks in the in the government, because obviously that's where there's an awful lot of potential for further explosion. Mm. Yes, yeah, and I think this idea that 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 may might be able to rely on Labour for votes, I think, is a little bit far fetched because. Well, first of all, the leadership's position is, well, we're only going to vote for a deal that has exactly the same benefits of the single market that we do now. Well, clearly this uh, checkers agreement doesn't because on services it's saying, look, we're going to lose all our access on, on services. So that's clearly not going to fly. Obviously, the big difference between Labour and, and the Conservatives at the moment in terms of their positions is on the customs union because Labour basically said, we want a, a, a full customs union uh, with the EU, whereas... The Conservatives had this idea of a customs partnership, which would be similar, um, but again, you'd have this uh, ability to potentially track goods where mm. they go. To, if they go to the UK, then you might be able to reimburse them if we reduce tariffs. So, because obviously uh, the Conservatives have, uh, you know, they've placed a lot more importance on the ability to have a free trade, uh, independent trade policy after Brexit, and the ability to be able to lower tariffs um, on food from from around the world has been a sort of central kind of tenet of, uh, of conservative policy on Brexit. So that's why they've, they've got that difference. Um, but, you know, but Labour also have their challenges because Labour's policy on the customs union is basically, we'll be in a customs union with the EU, but we'll also be able to influence uh, that, that trade policy at the same time. Mm. That seems a bit difficult to see how that's possible because... Um, at the end of the day, if you're not in the EU, then you don't have that level of say over, over what the, the EU is going to decide to do. There's a phrase that springs to mind, and I can't think quite <laughs> You can't have your cake and eat it. Yeah. That, 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 we're going to rename the episode that. <laughs> We've done it. Um, all right, so let's talk about the EU for a second. Obviously, we've talked about it a lot already mm. um, in terms of what they actually want and the power that they have in all this. The EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, how has he kind of responded to this and what might he want the UK to change about its position on Brexit is kind of the first half of the question. And the second half is, what what do you predict that they will do if we kind of go to them with something that looks like the Chequers deal? If that if, if we manage to get that far, do you think that they'll just be like, lol, no? This is the awkward bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's pretty clear. I, know, I, we, I wrote about this a couple of months ago, and indeed we even had some conversations on Twitter with with one of Barnier's advisors. Uh, <laughs> that they, you know, they've been pretty clear that they don't uh, accept basically the idea of extending the Northern Ireland backstop to the whole of the UK, and that's kind of mm. what the Chequers proposal is basically. So it's saying single market for goods, free movement of goods, but not free movement of people, and not free movement for services. So that is, you know. 
the whole the whole message of the EU from from the beginning has been we, the four freedoms are indivisible. Um, you can't separate them out. And this Chequers agreement explicitly separates them out. It literally says, no, we want freedom for goods. We don't want it for the rest. Now, I think Theresa May thinks, well, look, if we're saying oh, I'm going to sacrifice some services, then I'm at least I'm giving something away. You know, I'm I'm, I'm willing to accept there is a trade-off that you know you can't have a cake and eat it. I'm sort of willing. To, but I think from the EU's perspective, that's not good enough. <laughs> I think they 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 would see that as, as a too generous an agreement because it's still it's still very unusual to say well literally it's such a good deal on goods that we don't even need a border in Northern Ireland. But mm. at the same time, we're going to have these these uh, you know tough restrictions on services and particularly mm. on, on people. So almost certainly they'll come back to her on free movement of people if they want if mm-hmm. to go down that path and they'll, they'll come back to her possibly on services as well and uh, on the backstop as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at the moment they're confused because Barney is just confused because he, he had very much said, look, these are the, the, the UK's red lines. I'm going to accept these red lines and I'm going to find you the deal that I can do within those red lines. And his proposal mm. was an FDA. With yeah, because he says Ireland 80% of the Brexit deal is agreed, right? That's with the withdrawal agreement, yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's EU citizens' rights and the money, mm. that's all agreed. But but he thinks, look, I, I've, give, I've got the deal for you. You just need mm. to come. And, he, and I think he thinks that he can persuade Theresa May to sign up to the Northern Ireland backstop. Mm. But I'm not sure she's going to because, of the, because I just think it's against her unionist principles. So you've got a fundamental division here and it's very hard to see how it can be reconciled. Mm, it would almost be exciting if it wasn't so bloody tragic, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> well, there was a there was a um, a Steve. I think it was a Steve Bell cartoon in the Guardian a couple of days ago with Theresa May saying, "I've got some. Here are my red lines, but if you don't like these, I've got some more." Um, <laughs> and I think I think that's the trouble. You know, they're, they're, the red lines have been presented on several occasions now. What we should contrast this all against is the fact that Europe is not in a good place at the moment. There is, um, you know, Germany is kind of falling apart too politically. I mean, Merkel is fairly, her power is significantly weakened, shall we say. I mean, it would be a big mistake to say Angela Merkel's power no longer exists because she's an incredible politician, but her power is significantly weakened. And there's a rise of Euroscepticism in in many of the kind of core member states. And so I don't know how quite that, how, how that will play into the negotiations. But I mean, I guess if the... If the Commission and the negotiators are smart, they'll understand that actually the European project has to have a different tone to it mm-hmm. and it has to have a different mission at its heart, uh, ultimately, because otherwise I think it's really under quite profound threat, probably. Not being as harsh as they might otherwise be inclined to be on the UK to try and keep the UK sort of a bit more involved than it might otherwise want to be is probably smarter in the grand sweep of politics rather than getting into the detail. But I don't know if you if you kind of agree with that view, Marley. Well, I, I, I think the, you know, the EU are feeling pretty sort of confident at the moment. You know, there, there was a sort of a, a little bit of a scare after the, after the referendum result and obviously you had the French presidential elections, the Dutch presidential elections coming up, well, Dutch elections coming up. You know, so there were there were people who were concerned, but then after those results, actually, you know, you had the populist or the, the sort of radical parties not doing as well as as, as expected. 
To be honest, I, I think a lot of a lot of the stuff around Euroscepticism in, in the rest of the EU is a, is a little bit overblown in the UK. I think so. I mean, it, it, the British the British media on, on Germany is is, is is amazing because they constantly think that Merkel's about to sort of mm-hmm. be ousted about every week, you know, and it's, and, <laughs> and 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 you know she never is. And, I, and I, yes, there is a, there is at the moment obviously a, a, an issue around the, the migration question and not freedom of movement but yeah, non-EU migration and uh, and uh, refugees um, but but that's you know that is very that that's a that's a, a big question for Europe but it's I don't think it's threatens to completely implode the the project I think it, it's a question that needs to be managed and it's difficult but it, so so I, I don't I don't see that necessarily you know the, the, at the moment the EU27 have been extremely united um, on this if not anything else you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually I, I don't see that particularly changing I think they're, they're, they they basically all, all agree um, the one area where I suppose there could be a bit of a division is around is around the public of Ireland um, mm. But it doesn't look mm. like it, to be honest. Um, it looks like they're all basically in agreement. I mean, the reason I say Republic of Ireland might be a bit different is that Republic of Ireland is is, is more is more at risk of Brexit, I suppose, mm. than any other uh, other countries. It, you know, it's almost at the same risk of Brexit as as the UK in terms of e- economic impact, mm. um, whereas the rest of the EU there there isn't so much of, 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 a, of a big impact. So so I think, but I think to be honest, they're they're very confident. You know, that th- they're not shifting their position. I I can't see them. I can't see them shifting it at all, um, no. which, which you know, it kind of leads to a, a to a sort of rather worrying conclusion for the next mm. couple of months. Mm. I feel very windswept. <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> overwhelmed by this. Um, one final question. It's a it's a quick. It's a thirty seconder. Um, we usually ask people to make predictions, but I mean, when it comes to this stuff, that would just be cruel and unusual. <laughs> but um, just a kind of. Quick thoughts from each of you on what are the kind of next big steps for the negotiation? Obviously, this is coming out, you know, in a week's time, but, you know, one or two things that are going to come next. Andrew? The um, the first puff of smoke from the commission, I suppose, really, is, you know, the response from mm. Barnier and team on the uh, on the Chequers deal and proposals. If indeed that's the sort of firm, if they are indeed Theresa May's red lines, then um, seeing that, I suppose, is going to be the next big thing and it, it's possible that that has a significant impact on what what happens here as well because obviously that will inform for instance the response of some of the brexiteers as well because mm-hmm. if they because the, uh, part part of what was articulated certainly part of some of their fears is that you know they don't like the checkers deal and that's not the end of the story because it will yeah. get negotiated down by by you know that probably uh, sort of fairly bullish i think you're probably right probably fairly bullish uh, commission approach to the negotiation. So um, I guess seeing what the European Com- Commission makes of it and seeing what the subsequent ramifications that are in the UK, particularly for the government, is um, is perhaps the next thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and related to that, it's, I think it's all about the Irish backstop. That's that's the key thing that has to be agreed and, mm. the, and time is running out on it. And, and it's sort of been lost a little bit in the last week, but... You know, it, it, it's important. It relates, obviously, to the future partnership because it's it's intimately connected. Because Theresa May thinks that she can solve it all at once in a way. Because because if she if she agrees a future partnership that that aligns on goods and that that, that, that keeps goods flowing, then in a sense, she, you know, the Irish backstop kind of disappears away as a problem for her because because you don't mm. need it anymore if you if you if you've got that agreement on goods. But 
for the commission they need a, they need the backstop in there they, they they've committed to it it's they they think that's what was that was what was agreed in december that there was a, mm. a so there's a there's a fundamental disagreement about what they agreed in december they all thought oh well, this is great we've got, we've got this deal in december it's all sorted but they they clearly disagreed on how how to interpret um, mm. or, or, um what they signed up to and so that's where it all comes down to in the next in the next couple of months and at, at some point it's got to come back to that it's it's kind of gone it's, it's obviously got lost a bit in the politics of the last of the last week or so but but that's where the real uh, fight is in the next next couple of months and, and they all need to remember that they can't have their cake and eat it that's there nice. we go <laughs> <laughs> wonderful it's gone full circle well i will be waiting with bated breath and my cake on my plate see what's going to happen um but yeah that is all we've got time for today thank you so much marley morris from ippr and andrew pendleton from nef for joining me to gossip about brexit it's been absolutely titillating thank you lovely listener for joining us as usual that's it for this week if you have enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at weekly econ pod on twitter the weekly economics podcast is produced by james shield and brought to you by the new economics foundation see you next week when it might have come home (laughs) (laughs) to roost to roost